Good morning. Oh, it has been one of those weeks. So before we all jump into the message, just maybe it's been busy like me. Maybe you've been up to a whole lot. But we are about to get into text that brings us to God and to his care. And it's worth just breathing and enjoying what God has for it this morning. Uh, we have to, we've been on a series, uh, we just started last week talking about Jesus the healer and how it's so, it's so integral to who he is, how we know he's the Messiah, how we know he's king. His healing work was more than a crowd getter. It is a creator, desperate and, and lovingly and um, faithfully restoring his good creation. There was a time that it was good. There was a time that it was right. And he has been healer. And so it's a good time for us to remember that as much as we can feel sometimes in God's hands that we are being looked over so, so in such a, a scrutinizing way or to such a deep level, we have to remember that we are not in the hands of a punisher. When we become Christ's family, we are in the hands of the healer. Sometimes you go to the doctor and it's because something hurts and they're going to work to fix it. Sometimes you go to the doctor and you thought you were fine and they tell you that you're not. And Jesus is the same way. He looks over us. He caringly watches over us to restore us and bring us back to healing. And if we are with Jesus, and if we are in the house of the healer, we should expect to be healed body, soul, and spirit. When I was a kid, I was working with my dad. We did this a lot. And it was, you know, there's this weird division in my family, though, that me and Jake, if you've met Jake, he's here. He's one of the pastors on staff. We worked with him all the time. And then there was this gap, and no one else really did. So it was like, no, they will soon. They'll put in their time. They'll start doing the yard work. No, like we're in high school. We're still doing it and they're goofing off. Uh, though I do think that my brother now pays for it because he works directly with my dad. So at some point you got, you got to pay that piper is how it works. And so we're working with him. I was a little kid and there's something in a truck and he didn't want to crawl into the truck to get it. And I get it. It hurts your knees when you're older. You got to protect those things. They're only good for so long. So he sticks me up there and I'm looking for, I don't even remember what it was. I'm looking for a thing. And he goes, that's right there. And he's describing it. It's color, it's shape. He's like, it's right there. It's right there. It's right there. And I said, I, I can't see it. I'm just walking around in circles. Like, you know, it's probably seven or so. So you, that age when you don't see anything. And he said, if it was a snake, it would have bit you. And so I leap out of the truck and I said, what snake almost bit me? And I'm telling you, seven-year-olds, they're not much help. They also don't see anything. I've got a four-year-old, and she'll come to me, and she'll say, I can't find my water bottle. And I said, just go to your room and look for it for a minute, and then I'll come look for it. And she goes, I can't find it. It's nowhere in there. And she starts to panic. So I'm like, all right. We got to panic now. So I go in there to find it. And I walk in, and it is right in the middle of the room, right in the center, like the pink lid pointing at me. Like, it takes effort not to see it. And all I can figure is this is how my wife feels when she wants me to get something out of the pantry. And I'm sure it's there. And I'm looking and I can't find it until I get completely sure. I'm like, this is the time. It's happened to me many times when I said it wasn't there and she comes in and grabs it. But this is the day that it's not there. So I go, it's not there. We don't have it. And she walks up and it was, I mean, it was just, it was right there, like right in eyesight. I don't know what's wrong with me. There's just these times in life where we feel with people like, can't you see it? Like it's right there. It's so obvious. You can be in a debate with somebody or an argument, and they'll say something that actually ruined their own point, and you're like, ta-da, done. Did you hear it? Did you see what you just did? People have a way of not seeing things. It's blindness. Today, the uh, sermon uh, title is going to be, The Blind Will See, 
We'll talk about blindness today. Blindness in a story of incredible sight. It's a story of both of blindness, both physically and spiritually. And Jesus is going to hit on both of these topics. Now, heads up, today is 41 verses. So it's a lot of reading, but it's a story. So I figure if our district supervisor can come in and read from the law of Moses for two minutes, I can read a story to you. So get comfortable. You get to hear a story. It'll be nice. Um, spiritual blindness is, uh, leaves a, a lot of frustration. In Jesus, it leaves frustration of how did they not see it? How did they not see what was happening? The, the messianic images of Jesus, are, are, they're on the nose. I mean, healing the sick, lepers, uh, he, he bore, he, you know, by his stripes were healed. He's get, he gets struck and that leaves stripes behind on his skin. I mean, there are things about him that seems like you almost would have to work not to see it. There are... Uh, strong, strong examples of what he is. And in hindsight, we kind of say the same thing of how did they not see it? We're going to be reading a story today that happens at a festival with all these pictures and things that are coming back to Jesus, and he does this incredible thing, and they just don't see it. Spiritual blindness can be defined as one simple thing. It's not seeing the Spirit. This isn't a matter of not being spiritual in some weird, nebulous way that people define it. Spiritual blindness is not seeing the Spirit. It's not seeing God. In fact, spiritual blindness and God blindness, they could be synonymous terms. A picture of this would be in the Old Testament where Elisha is surrounded and his servant is panicked because they're surrounded by an army. And Elisha is not panicked. He's very comfortable, despite the fact he's surrounded by hostile forces. And he, he prays to God that God would open the eyes of his servant. His servant all of a sudden sees spiritually and sees that they might be surrounded, but the army themselves are surrounded by a greater army of heavenly hosts and that God is in control of the situation. Spiritual blindness is an inability to see God himself, to see what God is up to, and to see what matters to God. To where the eyes of our spirit are closed off and cannot see the Greeks and the Romans, they thought that rays came out of our eyes, like, like radar, and perceived the world. Uh, Middle Eastern people, including Jews, they believed that light came into your eyes, and that's how you saw. As it turns out, the Jews were right. The science has proved that that is true. The eye is the human organ that's responsible for seeing and interpreting light. It brings light into your body. You only have sight when light is coming in. So the light enters into your eyes, the cornea, it warps and shapes, and in the same way you can see a prism separates colors, our eye separates color, and we suddenly see things shape and color and dimension, and it comes through the eye. It is amazing that we see when light enters into us. There are some things in creation that God made that are just never-ending things that point to him, and that is one of them that sight comes when light enters your body. So also there is a vision beyond this world of things beyond this world and a reality beyond what is plainly seen. And it is perceiving that when that light comes in that we are made unblind. And we're gonna read a story today where, someone, where we see some blindness and spiritual blindness and it creates trouble. So we're gonna be in John chapter nine and we're gonna be starting right in verse one and we are reading the whole chapter today. 
As he went along, uh, he saw a man who was blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Neither this man nor his parents sinned, Jesus said. But this happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. As long as it is day, we must do the works of him who sent me. Night is coming when no one can work. While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. There's this question they ask of who, who sinned, and it's so interesting because before we talk about that, it's probably important to understand just what a blind person looks like. There are so many ways that we can partner with people who don't have the use of their eyes, that are blind today, and they can have a, an enormous amount of jobs and can still be part of society. But at this point, that wasn't the case. If you couldn't see, there was nothing you could do. And so physical ailments were always met by economic um, restriction on what a person could do. If you didn't have a hand, you would get paid half a man's wages. And if you didn't have your eyes, you would get paid for doing nothing. There was nothing you could do. So you're reduced to begging. And not only that, but rabbis taught that all physical ailment was the product of sin. So it was either something that he did or something his parents did, and he took on this prenatal sin for something they did. In fact, some even believed you could sin in the womb. Like, as you are a, a, a fetus, you did something wrong, and you could have been struck blind. So they're held in constant suspicion. So you've got no job as well as constant suspicion because people look at them and think they did this to themselves. There was something so evil they did, and if I can't find it, something their parents did that led to this. And you think about how, how perfectly protected that opinion is. Because you could look at a person's life and you could examine them over and say, they had no time to do anything all that bad. They've been blind their whole life. I, I, guess it, I guess I was wrong. You wouldn't say that. You would say, oh, well, in fact, we don't even have to find it in them. It could be in his parents. One generation's sin passing down. It was a perfect and insidious belief because you couldn't necessarily prove it wrong. And this teaching is so widespread that when the disciples ask, they don't ask, by the way, is it true that sin can strike you blind? They, they just assume it's true. They just start without his base and they just go on. Whose sin caused this, him or his, his parents? I think what makes it spread so safely or so, so effectively is the fact that it creates a sense of safety, that these things don't just happen that they can't just happen to us. We do believe that sickness is a product of sin. But if when asking who, who's guilty of sin to cause him to be blind, he or his parents, probably the most accurate answer would be his ancient parents, Adam and Eve. The sin that we're all born into, the sin we so easily give into. So we do know that it is related, but this protective belief of everyone who's struck blind is less than me, and I do not, I'm not responsible for them, my community is not responsible for them, it creates a sense of safety. It's a comfort-based answer, and it made matters worse. I think the only reason worth stopping here before we keep reading is just because there is a group of people in, in Christendom that will have a lot of uh, teachings and things they'll say about hidden sin causing every problem in our life. Now, I couldn't say that that wouldn't be true in some cases, but it'll be the kind of thing where something bad will happen horrible to a family, and they'll think hidden sin is doing it. 
you can never prove it quite right or wrong, so maybe it's not worth saying it if Jesus didn't indulge it either. The, to where Jesus' concern is not going to be on guilt, but it's going to be on the glory of God and the care for an individual. I guess it's just important to keep in mind. We must simply trust because that is really what separates faith from superstition. Faith is, the, is a hope in things of unseen and superstition is the anxiety of things unseen. That in some way, some unseen way, and I, can't, I don't know what it is, I've offended God or perhaps I have and that's where these terrible things are happening to me. Where faith in the unseen sounds more like, I don't know why it's happening, but I feel I need God. Over and over, we're going to be reading stories about people that came to Jesus, hardly knowing who he was and asking him for healing. And that's faith. We're going to continue on, starting again, uh, picking up where we left off in verse 6. After saying this, uh, he spit on the ground and made some mud with saliva and put it on the man's eyes. We'll come back to that. Uh, Go, he told him, wash in the pool of Siloam. This word means sent. So the man went and washed and came home sure I don't get ahead of myself, and came home seeing. His neighbors and those who had uh, formerly seen him, begged and, uh, were seen him begging asked, uh, isn't this the same man who sat and begged? Some claimed he, that he was, and some said he wasn't. Others said, uh, he only looks like him, but he himself insisted, I am the man. How, uh, how then were you how then were your eyes opened? I'm sorry, guys. A lot of reading today. Let's get there. Like I said, long week. Story time. He replied, uh, the man they called Jesus made some mud and put it on my eyes. He told me to go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed, and then I could see. Where is this man? They asked him. I don't know, he said. I know, the detail about mud. It's weird. I heard that, um, not that I was going to watch it because it sounded sacrilegious, but there was this movie that Joaquin Phoenix was in and they wanted to film that. He was playing Jesus and he refused to film it because he said it was so weird and gross. And I th- it is a seemingly, seems like a gross detail, but it's really important to understand uh, one critical story. Whenever Jesus seems like he's being a little shocking, There were so many disciples that believed in him that fell away and stopped believing when he said, you must eat my flesh and drink my blood to enter into the kingdom of heaven. They didn't get the picture. They didn't get the image. They got fixated on it and people fell away. Never let us be those people because this has an incredible meaning to it. The the word when God breathes into a handful of dirt and there becomes a man, it means spirit. It also means breath and it means vapor meaning the moisture in a person's breath, the vapor that would be left behind on glass. Breathing into dirt and there became a man. This is a very important way of healing this man because there are going to be major questions raised when they start to question him as to whether or not uh, where Jesus comes from and who, by whose power is he healing. And he is healing not as simply one sent by God, he's healing as God, recreating the initial creation picture of putting his own vapor into soil, into dirt, and where it once made a man, now it makes a man whole. It's a very powerful image. This is the sign. This is an incredible sign from God they're meant to interpret, that once again, he's making people whole. 
This, is, this story is taking place during the time of the Feast of Tabernacles, and it was a feast that was put together for really two purposes. One is that it was a memorial for the wilderness wanderings, and the people would live in booths as they lived in booths back then, setting up tents. And it was a time to celebrate the harvest. So it was kind of this double picture of coming into the promise. The hardship as well as God coming through on that promise. It is so important to remember when God comes through on promises and how he's going to provide. And this is a holiday dedicated to that. Over time, the pool of Siloam is very important. It was one that was built by Hezekiah in the Old Testament. And Jews added a practice where they would go and they would go to specifically to that pool to collect the water, to pour it over the altar, and to use for sacra- or sacramental sort of cleansing and um, cleaning of things. This is an incredible image given to, the, to the, the whole city at a time when everyone's thinking about these images because it is the festival, that it is God making promises to restore, restoring people and cleansing them and doing incredible things. The holiday is largely now fulfilled in people's sight, and it's being fulfilled before unperceiving eyes as we're going to see the Pharisees here getting involved. They brought uh, to the Pharisees the man who had been blind, Now, the day on which Jesus had made the mud and opened the man's eyes was Sabbath. There's a big no-no for them. Therefore, the Pharisees uh, who asked him how he had received his sight, uh, now the Pharisees were asking him how he received his sight. He put mud on my eyes, the man replied, and I washed, and now I see. Some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others asked, how can a sinner perform such signs? And so they were divided. Then they turned again to the blind man. What have you to say about him? It was your eyes that he opened. And the man replied, he is a prophet. They still did not believe uh, that he had been blind and received sight until they sent for the man's parents. These are the only people that could testify, yes, he's blind from childhood. Is this your son, they asked. Is this the one you say was born blind? How is it that he can see? We know this is our son, the parents answered. And we know that he was born blind. But how he can see now, or who opened his eyes, we do not know. Ask him. He is of age. He will speak for himself. His parents said this because they were afraid of the Jewish leaders, who had already decided that anyone who acknowledged Jesus was the Messiah would be put out of the synagogue. Now this is why his parents said, he is of age. Ask him. A second time, they summoned the man who had been blind. Give glory to God by telling the truth, they said. We know this man is a sinner. He replied, Whether he is a sinner or not, I don't know. One thing I do know, I was blind, but now I see. Then they asked him, what did he do? How did he open your eyes? That's the second time they've asked that question. He answered, I have told you already and you did not listen. What do you, why do you want to hear it again? Do you want to become his disciples too? Best burn in the New Testament, I think. That is so good. Then they hurled insults at him and said, Uh, You are this fellow's disciple. We are disciples of Moses. We know that God spoke to Moses, but as for this fellow, we don't even know where he comes from. The man answered, now, that is remarkable. You don't know where he comes from, yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners. He listens to the godly person who does his will. Nobody has ever heard of opening the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. Then they replied, You were steeped in sin at birth. 
How dare you lecture us? And they threw him out, meaning they excommunicated him from the synagogue, which was incredibly rare and extremely severe. We have to remember this is a culture that only exists through the synagogue system. They went into Babylon, they've come back. It is their faith that holds them together. Being put out of the synagogue is as good as saying you're not Jewish anymore. The key word here that it comes up over and over again is the Greek word we translate as no. Everyone thinks they know. How do you, like, the, the Pharisees constantly insisting that they know this and they know that. We know he's a sinner. We know we are disciples of Moses. And they keep saying it only to reveal that they know nothing. In fact, their biggest point, if you noticed it, is that we are disciples of Moses and he's out of sync with Moses. But just a few chapters earlier in John, Jesus says this. But do not think I will accuse you before the Father. Your accuser is Moses, on whom your hopes are set. If you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. But since you do not believe what he wrote, how are you going to believe what I say? There is this thing they are standing on. They know that they know that they know Moses. But their blindness to the law, what it is pointed to and, what, and who is coming, is revealing itself that they know nothing. Saying we don't know where he comes from is, is their way of saying we don't believe he came from God. We do not believe he is of God. But as we've been seeing, there are so many signs as to what Jesus is doing. And that man's question, though, it's a magnificent burn, is it not? Do you want to become his disciples also? That's amazing. Um, it's also a really telling question. What kind of investigation is this if they don't want to prove that he might be the Messiah? It's not an investigation at all because their minds are set and their eyes are blinded. Always spiritual blindness is predicated whether we are blind or seeing by how we answer this question, who do you say Jesus is? It was the the central question to the disciples, who do you say I am? When in the, after the New Testament closes its chapters and church history records, it was the question of the Romans. It was the question of the synagogues. Who do you say he is? When trials and executions and excommunications took over, spiritual blindness comes from how we answer that question. There's also an incredible need for obedience. Verse 31, he says something that's could actually be misinterpreted, and it's worth discussing. He says, we know that God does not listen to sinners. He listens to the godly person who does his will. A statement that is capable of horrendous horrendous misapplication. But in the context, it's very clear that genuine obedience is critical to the work of God. Not perfect obedience, genuine obedience. The New Testament's very realistic about our lack of perfect obedience but it's also really clear about our need for genuine obedience. In a little bit, we're going to read when Jesus speaks a little more on the Pharisees' blindness that their issue is that they, they were so certain they knew and they wouldn't repent. They had no changeable heart. No genuine obedience to God because we can mess up and we can screw things up, but genuine obedience is something that will, that will correct itself when confronted by God. They don't want this man to be Lord. He frustrates their system of control. He is the rightful heir, yet they refuse to give him the keys. In their hearts, there is not obedience to God. It's rebellion. 
and it leads them to misinterpret all of these signs that are now as we read it in hindsight in this passage clear as day. God wants genuine obedience. When told to wash in the pool of Siloam, the man just gets up and does it. No arguing. Had he refused to sit still for the mud procedure, had he refused to say, yes, I'll go wash, he would have had a very different story. His obedience to what Christ told him to do was enormous. And he ends up being far more spiritually perceiving when he's healed of not just one type of blindness, but the other. And the spiritual blindness the Pharisees are unhealed of remains. A question that we have to ask ourselves before we move on is, are there areas in our lives that are devoid of obedience? That tends to be more, there, there is global disobedience we see from God and that we can live, but most of us have this one little area or a few areas that can be sequestered off and locked away. And we have to ask, are there areas of our lives devoid of obedience? Because we may mess up and we might screw things up and we need to repent. But when we rearrange the furniture of our life to fit some disobedience, to fit not doing something, when we, when we decide that we're going to live around this thing and it's going to be something in our lives, it creates an enormous problem. When we start keeping secrets instead of confessing, it creates a problem. What the Pharisees are being judged for is not the fact that they screw up today. This was not their one and only chance. Their judgment is that they won't acknowledge it. They won't repent. And God was, Jesus is more than gracious with a Pharisee that would repent because one of the most famous ones is Paul and he wrote most of our New Testament. For the one that would repent and say that they were going to change and they were going to be obedient to God, incredible things can take place. Disobedience, it requires ignoring God. It requires not paying attention and listening. And ignoring God will make us blind in our spirit every time. Or as the book of, of Hebrews says, if you hear the voice of the Lord today, do not harden your heart. If God's convicting you about an area of your life that requires some, some adjustment today, a change in obedience, don't harden your heart. It's like a medical procedure. It might hurt a little bit at first, but it brings incredible healing. God is the healer. These are the hands of the healer that are work. We're now going to finish the story. About to finish a whole chapter. Jesus heard that they had thrown him out, excommunicated. And, he, uh, and when he found him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? Who is he, sir? The man asked. Tell me that I may believe in him. Now, real quick, every time in the book of John, son of man is being referenced, it's referring to Jesus. Jesus said, uh, you have now seen him. In fact, he is the one speaking with you. Then the man said, Lord, I believe, and he worshiped him. Jesus said, for judgment, I have come into this world so that the blind will see and those who see will become blind. Some Pharisees were with him, and they heard him say this, and they asked, what, are we blind too? And Jesus said, if you were blind, you would not be guilty of sin, but now that you claim to see, your guilt remains. Uh, I've said this before, 
But John wrote this right before he died. It's, a, it's the newest book of the, of the New Testament, the last one that was written before the canon closed. He wrote it to give to a church that was going to be heading out without disciples into the second, third, fourth, fifth centuries and where they were going. And I think he wanted to record this story in particular because we have some things in common. If you were born around the time this gospel was written, you also said yes to Jesus without ever seeing him. Do you realize that this man has believed that this healer healed him and he's never seen his face? Some of them were healed and the first face they saw was Jesus. This man has mud put on his eyes, has to go for a hike, take a bath, and Jesus is nowhere to be seen when his sight comes back to the point to where Jesus starts a conversation with him and he doesn't recognize who it is until he identifies himself. We too have put faith in someone that we haven't seen. And he proves to be so faithful because of his, uh, the change in his heart. He does something that's remarkable. That word worship, and it says that he worshiped him, is incredibly out of place for the rest of the Gospels. This doesn't mean uh, he, he you know, prays like he clapped his hands or the way you would thank a king. It is a religious word for worship, meaning this guy, literally the way you would think about it and interpret it just from the English text, literally worships Jesus. It is something that other people did not do. This is before his glorification, meaning that this man who starts out in the story blind becomes one of the people of some of the most incredible spiritual sight that we see in the Gospels that he sees Jesus for who he is and worships him for who he is. His eyes are open in so many ways, both ways, physically and spiritually, to the point that when he realizes who healed him, who is standing in his midst, he first says, sir, tell me who he is. And when he says who he is, he stops calling him sir and calls him Lord. And we see that theme of obedience again, get up and wash. And when he knows who he is, he is the Lord of his life. This is how we must see Jesus, that he has the right to move, change, do anything he wants to in our lives because he becomes Lord. The Pharisees, on the other hand, are the sad side of the story, who failed to see this incredible thing that happened in front of them, what God was doing. And so they actually failed to experience the celebration and joys of the Feast of Tabernacles that they were celebrating. They spend so much time claiming that physical blindness was a choice, a choice of sin in the person's life or the life of their parents. And as it turns out, the only blindness that comes by choice is spiritual blindness. The sum, we could say, of many choices of saying no, of wanting to hang on to what they want, of not wanting to be obedient in this area, that area, until the moment comes when it is clear as day and we stand around and this other man stands around and goes, how do you not see it? I've had my eyes for like an hour now and I see it. How do you not see it? And it comes from a sum of many choices. There are a lot of choices we make to live in obedience or not. I remember there was a time, and we protect ourselves from obedience by not looking. There was a time that I, when I first started with youth ministry, I was feeling a little like burned out for the day. So I was like, I'm going to walk to 7-Eleven, get a nice tea and walk back. It works a lot. So I got, it was a nice day. I walk, I go through the park, I come back and as I've got my tea and I just, I wanted like a spirit walk, 
you know, like a walkabout. Like I was going to just, just feel better and get it all out. And as I'm walking in the park, there's just a whole bunch of middle schoolers, like a ton of middle schoolers, way more than you see congregated together. There's no way that they can all talk at the same time. As I'm walking, I see them forming a circle in the parking lot. And I'm like, gee, what's going on over there? And then two boys are facing each other in the circle. And I realize that a fight is about to break out. And my first thought, new youth pastor, like, I'm here to spread the gospel to teens. My first thought was, oh, man, I wish I didn't see this. Because now I know I got to do something. Like, I can't just walk by and be like, good luck. So I, had, so I had to go in this circle. There's like all these middle schoolers. And I'm like, there's no way you guys are fighting. You realize that, right? And they're like, we're going to do it anyway. So, you know, if you can't convince them, trick them, right? So I said, just so you know, I'm, a, I'm clergy here in town. Makes me a mandatory reporter. So if there's violence, I have to call the police. I can't. I can't not. And so they're like, oh, and they all ran off. Because, which, is it true? Is it not true? I don't know. It's a gray area. The gray would have gone in my favor. I would have totally fake called on the phone and be like, yeah, get down here. I see him. So they all disperse. The two boys, there was actually one bigger kid and the two little boys that were going to fight him together. And I don't know what happened. I didn't ask. But they decided that they were going to walk with me and I escorted them home. <laughs> they didn't want to fight. They just, you know, you know it is. You have to pretend you want to fight. So they go home and that was it. Never saw any of them again. And uh, I hope it made a mark and that someone thought, well, thank God, uh, a man of God stopped me from getting a beating. I don't know. But I just thought it was interesting. That first thing that I wanted was just to not see it. And I wish I didn't see this. I wish I could have just continued on. That kind of desire for blindness can easily be fulfilled if you want it to be, of not seeing it, of not caring. And this is the kind of disobedience that led these people to get to this point, these supposed caretakers of the kingdom, of the people. A lack of obedience leads to blindness. And blindness makes us incredibly dead to the works of God. What's really happening in front of us? What God is doing around us and how God is active in a situation that it appears he's not active in. When you have God open your eyes, it is true, you're going to see good things and bad things. Because you can't shut your eyes to one or the other. You can't shut your eyes to suffering, but at the same time, see the glory of God. When they open, you're going to see both. But compare the man to the Pharisees, the life they live, the things that they have experienced and who they are. As uncomfortable as it may be, you really want God to open your eyes to what is happening around you. We're going to end with this. I wanted to say one last thing about the pool of Siloam. This pool, as we remember, it's the one used for ceremonial cleaning. And, and uh, John finds it really important. John was all about symbolism and pictures. And when he says this is the meaning of this word or this was the time of day, pay attention. He says this pool means scent. It was used by a lot of people in this festival to cleanse and to purify and to do God's work. But there's only one person whose eyes had opened, and it was the person who was sent to the pool by God. Who was sent. To this day, it is the people who are sent. God opens their eyes. That the methodology won't work. You can't just read, and you can't just raise your hands and worship and do these things. It still requires that you are called and sent, and that God sends you into the place of healing, sends you into those things. 
that He is the one doing the eyes. He is the one opening it. There's more than spiritual methodology. To the outside, communion is crackers and juice. But to those who are sent, it's the blood and body of Christ. To the outside, baptism is a dunk in water. But to those who are sent, it is resurrection into new life. There is still a supernatural need in all of us today that you cannot open your eyes by yourself, by doing the method, by doing it. It comes from making someone Lord and saying, would you open my eyes? Would you do a miracle and open these eyes? Open my eyes to see what work around me, to see what you've been doing. We get stuck in these situations. We wonder, where is God? Why can't I see him? Why do I feel so alone? God wants to open your eyes to that, that you would have an experience like Elisha's servant, that you would see God working on your behalf, that you would understand your valley and where it fits in with the mountaintop. We have eyes where God wants to see him at work and he wants us to see us where he wants to work through us. That as our eyes are open, they're also open to see the person in pain next to us that needs some kindness today. Need some kindness in the name of Jesus that we would partner and say, yes, Lord, I will go. And to allow God to never let us get trapped in the Pharisee's trap, but we'd say, God, would you open my eyes that my heart would become softer. We could shut our eyes to people and let prejudice shut us down. They had their very fixed view of blind people. They had their very fixed view of rabble rousers as they saw Jesus. And God wants to open people's eyes that they could see clearly beyond prejudice, beyond what we're so confident in, well, beyond what we think we know, and we think we know, we know, we know. To have the kind of faith to say, God, would you open them? Would you give me spiritual sight? There'd be one specific thing that I would see the Spirit, that I would see God, that I would see God at work around me. I would see what God is up to, and that I would have a greater perception of the Lord. Let's pray. God, I ask today that you would come alongside of us. It would be more than just a simple desire. Lord, would you send us into healing? Would you send us into recovered vision? Lord, I pray for everybody in this place who feels trapped and they don't know where you are in the situation and they feel like everything's coming down around them. Lord, I pray for vision spiritual vision to see where you are at work, that you do make your promises. Lord, would they hear and hang on to your promises that you would be over everything. As clouds hang over the earth, Lord, would your promises hang over them, that they would be present and always with them, guarding over them, watching over them. God, I pray you would open our eyes of compassion, that we would have God's eyes, that we would see what you're up to and what you want us to be up to, Lord. Give us a yes, Lord, spirit that we would have that obedience with you and through that obedience and enjoy a relationship and a fullness with you that we cannot have apart from it. And Lord, where we just think we know, we know, we know, and we've written things off. Sometimes the softening of the heart comes by seeing things as you see them. Lord, reveal to our hearts right now who we've been angry with, who we've been upset with, who we have written off. 
How do you see them, God? What, what is your picture of them? Had I never met them and I asked you, who is that over there? How would you articulate it? How would you say it? Lord, say those things to our hearts today that we would be more like you, that we would see things as you see them so that we could be as you are. Help us in our obedience, God. Help us in our convictions as we follow you.